Welcome back to the EU and You podcast. Uh, we're a group of young European volunteers working to break down the barriers and close gaps between citizens and institutions. I'm Alistair and I'm joined as always by Francesco. Hello everyone, how are you? And we are also joined uh, today by Dory. Hi everyone. So Dory's with us for a very special reason. Uh, we're going to have uh, a discussion today about the Visegrad group. Am I saying that right, first of all? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Not at all. <laughs> Actually, it's called Visegrad in Hungarian, but I guess for the sake of international Visegrad. approach, I can accept Visegrad as well. No, but, yeah, that's interesting. We'll have to see how Lily pronounces it whenever she comes on. It might be a little different as well. Dory, would you like to introduce yourself? Quick, uh, Some of our listeners are going to know exactly who you are, but would you like to just give a quick introduction of yourself? Yes, of course. So, hi everyone. My name is Dory. I am from Hungary. I joined the EU and you team almost two years ago, I believe, and I'm working in the events team. I'm specialized in European policy making, and my field is social policy and educational policy. So would you like to maybe introduce our topic a little bit today? Yes, sure. The idea behind the name of Visegrad is actually taking us for a short uh, history back to 1335, when the castle of Visegrad was the seat of the Hungarian kings. And it was also the venue of the summit of the Polish, Czech and Hungarian kings. By the way, those uh, interested in geography, Visegrad is a city by the river uh, Danube in Hungary, close to Budapest, so it's 40 minutes travel. So that is where the three kings agreed to work closely together in politics and trade back in the days. But the Visegrad for nowadays is the unofficial name of the Central European Initiative between the four post-communist countries, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland and Slovakia. I think the group was originally called the Visegrad Trio, because it was the Czechoslovak Federal Republic in 1993. After that, it became the Czech Republic and Slovakia. So we can talk about Visegrad 4 since then. Perfect point uh, for Lily to join. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hey. Lily, thank you so much for joining us, especially at short notice. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to have you. Lily and I know each other, but we haven't seen each other in four years, maybe five. It was a long time like ago. Five years, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I really appreciate you like yeah. jumping on at short notice. So what we've really just only gotten started. So we've done some sort of short introductions. I guess you and I know each other. Francesco is co-host with me on this podcast. And Dory is a EU and you member joining us from Hungary. Would you like to give us a little introduction to, to you and where you're from and what do you do? My name is Lily Spiegel. I am originally from Prague, Czech Republic, but I have been living in Amsterdam, Netherlands for the last three years, actually. And before that, I have lived in Prague my whole life. And I moved to the Netherlands for my studies. So I'm currently finishing my bachelor's degree in communication, and I'll be staying here for a little bit longer for my master's. So thanks for having me today. You're very welcome. Cool. Dory was just getting us started with uh, a little overview on Wishigrad group. I'm going to need correction and pronunci on pronunciation of that throughout. So please jump in every time. So yeah, I I didn't know that I didn't know it was named after like an actual place. I didn't know that there was like a physical place. I didn't know that there was a castle. That's really interesting. It's a pretty cool place. You should visit it one day. So is the castle still there? Ruins of the castles are still there. Ruins, yeah. Yeah, because I, I do know that it was like the 1300, it was like a, a long time ago. Yeah, 1335. 
And since then, a lot of things has changed, that's for sure. <laughs> but yeah, I like cooperation between the countries, not so much, which is funny. That's one of the things that I wanted to talk about. I'm interested in like the political aspect of it, for sure. I'm also interested in like the kind of cultural aspect of it. I guess a lot of people listening maybe were not familiar with even the concept of this grouping before listening to this or reading our posts. So my first question is, to what extent is it a kind of visible thing in like daily life? Is it something that, that the average person on the street knows about? Or is it something kind of distant? To add to that, is it like, is it, does it feel like Benelux? If you know what I mean, does it feel like having that group of countries that actively help themselves or is it more distant? Lily, do you want to start or should I? Sure. Yeah, I would say that actually, I think it's a nice comparison to make between Benelux and Indeed. the Visegrad 4, especially since I live in the Netherlands, I can really see the impact of this, let's say like grouping of the countries. So I think I can compare it a little bit actually to that analogy. Personally, I think that in the society, for instance, in the Czech Republic, I can definitely say that, especially because of the history, we used to be one country with Slovakia. So it used to be Czechoslovakia up until, yeah, like late 80s. So yeah, I would definitely say that there is this, uh, this feeling that it's a, a country that is close. So for instance, I would say historically, there is definitely a feeling of being close to Slovakia. I would say that's the country that we would feel uh, closest to. When it comes to Poland and uh, Hungary, you do feel like it's a neighbor, but I would not necessarily say I would feel very strongly about the countries when it comes to some sort of like a closer relationship. But of course, the economic side of things, there is some sort of a cooperation. So for instance, like you would buy a shampoo from Procter & Gamble, and you can very clearly see on the packaging that there it's there's a it's in Czech and then it's also translated in Hungarian, Polish and Slovakian. And you can see that the countries are to some extent also economically intertwined. Yeah. But I think if you asked someone on the street, like a regular person, I don't think that they would be very knowledgeable of this, let's say, cooperation between the countries or the Visegrad for. Yeah, I think I can only agree with what have, has been said. And maybe I would add that there is also a common approach to communist times because we went to historically almost the same path. So I've been living in Krakow for uh, half a year for semester. And what I have been learning there and also visiting museums and doing the tours and stuff like that, it really, it is really similar to history. So. The Visegrad 4 was created initially with the aim of trying to, to make a cooperation, like a facilitation of the European integration towards the European Union, so that these four post-communist countries can get rid of the totalitarian re regime and maybe build free, pluralistic and democratic societies on their own. And that was like a joint initiative to do this together. So after each of the Visegrad countries joined the European Union in 2004, the dream became reality and they saw that it can help to work together towards their goals. And I'm not sure if on the streets you would uh, stop a stranger and they would know what is Visegrad for, in Hungary at least. But 
I feel like most of my friends and my family, they know for sure. So my bubble, they know about it, but I can hardly say anything about strangers on the street. But about the Visegrad think tank or many other organizations, the Visegrad Fund, they are very present in our everyday life. Oh yeah, I wanted to ask about the fund as well. So I live in Northern Ireland and what we see everywhere on like our buses and train stations and stuff is this little EU symbol and it says paid for by the EU Regional Development Fund. Uh, do you, Are there things like that for things that have been paid for like <laughs> by the, the, the Visegrad Fund? I think it's a bit different. Through the Visegrad Fund, you can apply for scientific research, innovative ideas for like funds for innovative ideas or exchange programs or other business ties. It's a bit different. It's an unofficial or cooperation or collaboration still. So it's not like the European Union, but the Benelux states, I think it's a very nice comparison to it. It's more like a cultural, economic idea of cooperation between the four countries. I think it's, it's like, Dory, what you said, Alistair, I have never seen a sign anywhere that would say this was funded by V4 or something. <laughs> like This is probably not as official as the EU or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's also like a catalyst of development in, in the area of innovation, higher education, research, investments, stuff like that. Uh, I, I just wanted to ask if if you would say or if you feel one of these countries has like taken a bit of a leader initiative between the four, if you know anything about that and if you do, what the implications for it are? I don't really know if I, if I have an answer to that. I'm interested in politics, but not to the extent that I would try to look for patterns or like I would think about this on a daily basis and I would think, hmm, who's the leader or who do I feel like is the leader of this, of the group? So I don't, I, I personally uh, don't think that I have an answer to that, but I'm pretty sure that like when you look at reality of things, I'm pretty sure that there is that there are more dominant countries and countries that are, let's say, could be seen as a bit more submissive. There is only one thing maybe I was thinking about is we're on the narrative level. Hungary is trying to use the Visegrad 4 as a, a shield, especially when it comes to EU sanctions towards Poland or Hungary, which happened a few times in the past few years. And I think it's also a strategy to maybe straighten this cooperation. So there is a plan B. <laughs> okay, it, it, and I don't see Hungary leaving the EU, but it's a plan B regarding to have a, a balanced voice between Western and Eastern narratives or priorities. And I think in maybe that sense, the Visegrad 4 might be a bit more important, strategically speaking, for Hungary and Poland than maybe for the Czech Republic and Slovakia. I can see that. That was actually a very good point. So would you say that Hungary could be pushing for more economic development more towards the the east of Europe rather than Western Europe? There is definitely an Eastern opening in general for Hungary, economic-wise, not only within the EU, but also outside of the EU. So I guess that's definitely the road that they're also trying to take. And it, it doesn't mean to abandon the other road to the Western partners or collaborations, but from the news and, and from politics, 
I think I see that there is definitely they op- the current Hungarian government, they open more to to Eastern. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great answer, actually. I think so, I can maybe actually add to that a little bit because this Western Eastern notion, I think at, at least from my experience, the Visegrad 4 is not always like necessarily seen in the Czech Republic, or maybe I can, I should not generalize, maybe I should talk about what I've heard like in the news. It's not always seen as a, as a good thing because it's basically a group of four countries and all of these countries could be seen as Eastern countries. But for instance, Czech Republic is really trying to go in the direction of the West. And because of the history and everything, we have, as Dori said, the um, there's a common history, the communism and everything. And you're trying really hard to get out of that circle. And you're trying to go somewhere like more towards the Western side of things. And so also with being in the EU, I feel sometimes in the news and in the media, especially it's not always seen as a good thing. So for instance, when there would be a meeting of the countries, it's uh, seen like dragging Czech Republic back instead of going forward, because it's like uh, going back to the history. And I think some people don't necessarily like that. For instance, the Czech president, Miloš Zeman, he is quite, I think, quite fond of the grouping. And, And people also don't like that generally, I think. So... This is something to consider. That's a little bit of the narrative that has been going on in the media. I can see that being a shared sentiment among Eastern European countries and this willingness of getting rid of the communist past, the communist, like mm-hmm. everything that was before and seeking more and more Western integration. I think all of the four, Czech Republic is the one that I've spent the most time in and probably have spent the most time with Czech people. But second to that, I probably like know the most Polish people, but I've probably spent the most time in Hungary recently. But what you were saying, Lily, made me think of the Czech people are the ones who I have heard using the term like Central Europe most often, or like I've heard Czech people correcting mm-hmm. people who refer to the Czech Republic as being mm-hmm. in Eastern Europe. And I feel like I don't hear or haven't heard that as, as as often from whether that's because they just let it slide or because they don't consider themselves as central or from but I feel like it's like in the Czech Republic has this the heart of Europe thing I think that's in like all the signs in the airport and stuff but yeah so it made me I hadn't even considered that could actually be a dimension to this as well this group of cooperation is, is there and is helpful for certain things but also does it keep you tied in i think particularly like east-west tension because as you said in like in the 70s whenever the you had the anti-communists and all four well you know, three three four countries trying to move towards europe like from my limited understanding of the politics of the czech republic and, and hungary and poland there's a certain amount of russian influence in, in certain spheres or certain characters from the old days who reappeared in in new governments and things uh, so do, do you think that there's that original spirit sort of Europe like moving towards Europe do you think that's still intact in Czech Republic you mean I think it, I think it across the board yeah I think for Czech Republic I can tell the answer is yes just from what you were saying before so I guess also I'm interested in what you maybe speculate about you know like Poland and Slovakia and maybe Dory what you think about Hungary yeah well we also like to correct people who call us Eastern Europeans, but I just gave it up in the recent years because I've been living to the Netherlands, to France and Poland. 
And the only place where they called me Central European, it's Poland. But in the Netherlands or in France, it was always Eastern Europe. When, mm -hmm. So I think it's also a mental map where they would put the other one or where is the, it could be a lot of things, the cultural approach, geographically speaking, it's a whole lot of mess. But I always felt like the Netherlands, culturally speaking, is just as far away from Hungary than, for example, Bulgaria. So for me, it is, and also maybe what differentiates Hungary from the other three countries is that we don't speak a Slavic language here. And we're in this, we, we say, we're in the sea of Slavic language, an island, and our language is most probably closer to Estonian or Finnish than to Slovakian or Czech or Polish. And that's also a standing point where we try to emphasize that we are very unique and central and we don't belong to the east, we don't belong to the west, but we actually don't belong to anywhere, so you better know us because whatever. But I just gave it up. I accepted that it's not going to happen. Not everyone is going to know that I don't speak a Slavic language. Not everyone is going to know that I'm not Eastern European. Sometimes they even would call my capital Bucharest, so I just have to let it go. Oh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, no. And so for me, personally speaking, it's not a big deal. It's also what Lily just said about the products. You can see the grouping already. How would the EU put us, we are grouped with uh, other Slavic-speaking countries, other Eastern European countries. But even if you just visit the country, it's, it might be a mixture, just influenced by everything that has been going around in the history. So for me, identity-wise, it's not a bad thing to be called an Eastern European anymore. But the Visegrad 4 in every possible communication and narrative uses Central European. So it might be interesting or important, but then again, if the countries speak separately, they can emphasize the importance of Visegrad 4 in terms of Western and Eastern balance. Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, probably not, but I also... It's a yes and no. What I really take from that is it, it's really interesting is that you guys actually are in the middle. Like, you, you are Central Europe because you have all these different, like, perceptions and tensions and people on either side, like, viewing you differently and stuff. I was going to say that actually I've heard the, at least in Italy, I've heard the term middle European being thrown around a lot more than you would expect when considering Hungary, Czech Republic, I feel like you would easily refer to it like as middle Europe and yeah, I, yeah, you would actually use the term middle. So I guess, yeah, it's really a matter of perception. I can see why you would say Eastern Europe, because from a historical perspective, you would just refer to all the countries of the ex-USSR block, basically. <laughs> and you would just say, yeah, okay, Eastern Europe, because it was just like East and West. But yeah, I feel like that was just my own take, my own perspective. Like I've heard that term thrown around, being thrown around a lot more. And to me, Eastern Europe is more, like you were saying, like Bulgaria, Romania, that's, you know, obviously Ukraine, Russia, that's more Eastern Europe to me, if that makes sense. Honestly, Czechia is basically into Germany. <laughs> and for that matter, by that definition, Austria would be in Eastern Europe. Austria, right? Like... Just yeah, like it, geographically no speaking, right? Like if you were like just looking on the map, yeah. Because Czechia is like like right on top of it. So, but then 
no, nobody would say, okay, Austria is an Eastern European country. So I don't know. It is it is perception, but it's just something that came to my mind because I've heard it many times. And, and also, if I may add just very quickly, I think it's also very funny how we use Eastern Europe as a pejorative word because it is yeah, really isn't it? and we should not. Like, it's why is that wrong? <laughs> To be exactly, exactly. I think yeah. I was just gonna say that I think the biggest problem is the negative connotation that is associated with the word Eastern. So I wouldn't actually. I have exactly the same experience as Dory. So ever since I came to the Netherlands, whenever someone asks where I'm from, it's super multicultural here. So whenever someone asks, I say that I'm from Prague, Czech Republic, and usually in my experience. Most people know Prague, but they don't know Czech Republic, which is says a lot. So I think it's also about education. Like some people don't like last week, somebody asked me if Czech Republic has borders with Ukraine. So it's trickier fact, but, but personally, I don't mind. Of course, for instance, here in the Netherlands, people want to see their country as Western and very progressive and like towards everything Western. So I think for them, it's obvious that when you compare, compare, for instance, Netherlands and Czech Republic in that sense is an Eastern country on the map, it's clear. But the biggest problem, I think, is, uh, yeah, like we said, the connotation, the, ne the negative pejorative association with it. But for instance, Czech Republic is super, I wouldn't necessarily say that, of course, there are many components in the, like, in the culture that are and can be, of course, like associated with Eastern cultures, a lot of common patterns, like the, the same kind of stuff. The food is also on that side. But up until the point in late 40s, when communism was introduced, it was not really Eastern. There was so much German influence. The food was, everything was like, it, there was very close co cooperation with Germany. And I don't mean just in the Second World War. E even before that, there was so much of industrial revolution and this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's almost like uh, it could also maybe help explain how the concept of like Central Europe got deleted from people's minds because you have this idea of the Iron Curtain and stuff and there was a division of things where either East or West, like there wasn't yeah. this concept of something in the middle. And that could also be, maybe that's also what's played into this pejorative usage of Eastern Europe that so many people seem to have had as an unco unconscious kind of bias. I, 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 I don't like actually, I don't actually know. I'm just, it, it seems very plausible though, like historically, like that, that, that could have influenced it. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's just my own perception, at least among my peers. And I'm 21. I don't see that. I don't see the term Eastern Europe really being used as pejorative as much as maybe older generations, if that makes sense. At least, yeah, just my own perception of it at least. But then again, you can easily correct me if I'm wrong. It's just how I've used it, even with my friends. I don't know, like you just refer to it geographically more than meaning anything by it. We're definitely like a nicer bubble, I think. Yeah, that but that's also up. why... <laughs> I have that concept of Middle Europe that I also use a lot. I've, I, mean, I don't know. Maybe that's just my, yeah, maybe that's my own bubble. What I'm thinking of is I've just lived through, I'm living through like a decade of Brexit. And I can tell you there are millions of people in England, like actively using Eastern European as a very negative term. Yeah. Like, okay, it's, it's a lot. It's definitely alive and well in certain parts of the okay. world. Okay, man. Fair enough. Fair enough. I believe you. So I lived in the UK when Brexit happened and I was working in a cafe. And then a lot of Polish workers came in and then another person waiting in the line and I was serving him. He was like, 
yeah, that's why Brexit is happening. Eastern Europeans working behind the bar and lining behind me. And I'm like, hmm, oh my god, nice. nasty, yeah. kind of nasty. Yeah, joke, joke. Yeah, it's it, it is actually really ridiculous. Like, <laughs> this but I must say, of, also other yeah. people, they were like very protective, and they were like calling out him for saying things like that. So that's good. Other British yeah. people can be okay. really nice. I feel like it's, it's yeah. It's, <laughs> I was gonna say fifty fifty, but yeah, certainly. I think if you're speaking to younger people, it would be a little bit nicer. But maybe just the last word about youth investing thing. I feel like it's just the nature of things that we always want to differentiate ourselves based on something else. So we always need an other enabled yeah. to being able to know what we are. And for example, if you take Germany, my German friends would refer to she is from the East. So that's why she's the way um, she is. And then it's still very live. So I feel like you guys just have very nice friends. But people I came across, they still use Eastern as a very pejorative word, which I hope will change soon. And it gives me hope But that you're 21. So maybe the next generation is going to change this. And I actually completely agree to that. I think it's like in our nature to, in every country's nature, to have a country that is a little bit above. And then there are some that are a little bit like beyond. So I think like below. So that's, for instance, in Czech Republic, now with what's happening in Ukraine and everything, no one's, I think no one would dare to say stuff like that. But I personally, of course, don't see it that way. I never have because I'm quite well educated and I think it's also about being a good person like you don't distinguish between people just based on the country that they're from it's who you are as a person but I think back in the days also in Czech Republic even before this whole war happened we have always had quite a lot of migrant workers from Ukraine also from Russia but not as much as from Ukraine from Romania also I think the Czech Republic is like this like western wannabe so that's I feel like why people are trying so hard to say it's a it's a central European country but in the past there was always so much backlash about these discussions like in the way that people from like actual Eastern Europe like Ukraine Russia uh, Belarus, they're below us. And that's, of course, super sad. And then there were always in, in the minds of people, these countries that were above, like the Netherlands and Germany. And so I feel like every country, people generally tend to place themselves somewhere on the scale. And in order to make themselves feel better, they always have someone who's beneath. So it's, it's a little bit um, of a sad thing, I think but definitely a reality for some people. I, I have hope for the future though, at least considering that all of these countries now, they always have had cultural ties. And it's like you were saying before, prior to the USSR, right? You had Prussia, you had the Russian Lithuanian Commonwealth, you had like all of these countries. There was little difference culturally between a little village in Hungary, the little village in Austria and the little village in Czechia, cultural ties have always been there. And I feel one of the positive effects, maybe, hopefully, of the European Union is this constant integration. And it's more like we're all just in this continent and we're all cultures matter on the same level. If that makes sense. So I do, I am hopeful for the European project in that way. And I think that there have been improvements as opposed to years ago. <laughs> and hopefully the trend will continue to go up. But I agree, there's always this concept of the other that there needs to be confrontation yeah it 
you can probably slowly, that probably starts to fade away the moment that you just start seeing, okay, they speak a different language maybe, but culturally what's really different? Yeah, I've said this before, but like, so living in Northern Ireland, there's a huge friction between Irish people and English people. But then if you spend any time anywhere further away, like America or Asia or something, you very quickly realize these Irish people and English people who think that they're the world's worst enemies, they're actually like right beside each other on like the cultural spectrum. They're on the global scale. They're like nearly identical. Um, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. When you zoom out. How do people... Like, like, how do Czech people and Hungarian people view, like, Czech, Polish, Hungarian, and Slovakian people in terms of, are there, not like stereotypes, but like qualities that you would associate, you know, with people from those particular countries or, or anything? The reason I ask that question is not to like dwell on like negative stereotypes or anything, but I'm more so thinking about like, uh, for people listening who maybe don't know too much about this region, try and help them like personify a little bit, like... The countries if, if is there anything that comes to mind that for example this is like a negative stereotype which is not the sort of thing i'm talking about but like people think about irish people we would get you know classified as drinking and emigrating to lots of different places and like going on holiday and big groups of boys but then also there's lots of like engineering and like you know, economic centers and stuff do you have a sense of like the personalities of the different countries i think for instance when it comes to check people's perception on let's say Polish people I think there is definitely this like tendency to perceive Polish people as well for one super religious (laughs) because Czech Republic is a pretty atheist country actually I have seen that was years ago I saw some statistical information about Czech Republic being like what like the most atheist country in the world or Europe or I don't know what that was but it was basically the most atheist country there was. So I'm not sure how, from my own experience, it's very uncommon to be religious in Czech Republic. I'm personally, I'm also not religious and I don't really, in my like background, I don't really know anyone who would be religious. So yeah, I think there is definitely this perception of Czech people on Polish people that they're super religious, they have a lot of kids, and I think, and also I think that there is this like strange thing that Czech people don't necessarily like Polish people, but it is the other way around, which is like a weird thing. Of course, yeah, this like in media studies you would call this like stereotyping and othering and it's not a good thing but since you openly asked Alastair this is what I can (laughs) add to the table and I don't believe in this kind of stuff but I think that when it comes to the core values of Polish people and Czech people it's essentially the same Polish people statistically are probably more religious but does it make you a different person? Like geographically, the DNA is going to be super similar. And that's also going to reflect on what kind of person you are. And when it comes to the Slovakian people and Hungarian people, I think it's the same. I think there are not really any big differences seen, especially with the Slovakian people. There is this maybe perception that they drink quite a lot (laughs) or they get drunk really fast. I've heard that lately in hungary because there was there is a common sentimental uh, i don't know nostalgic view through the big hungary the 
empire. And so after 1920, that was when Trianon happened and the 75% of territories where Hungarians were living were given to other countries. It's a shared trauma in Hungary still, and it's very present and alive. So for some reason, some people still, even my age, they would say that Well, Slovakian people, they have some, I don't even know how to phrase that in a nice way, but anti-sentiments towards them because they think that Slovakia is a newborn country and they don't even exist and stuff like that. But that's hopefully gonna die out soon with the new generations, but it's still very present, especially when it comes to sports and stuff, which is weird, but it's always with sports, it's a bit like more extreme. And then, yeah, Polish people definitely with the religion. We also associate Polish people with like religion and Christianity. And that's also what Viktor Orban and the president of Poland try to, well, play out smartly how Christian democratic values are similar in the two countries, but they are not like Hungary is not as religious as the government wants it to be. And Poland is quite religious, but the statistics say that the new generations are much less and they're much more progressive than the rest of uh, the society. And when I was living in Krakow, I could actually see that Krakow is the most progressive city I have ever been to. There are lots of vegan places. Everyone is really open. They all speak English and they're just very nice, younger generations. So they wear all the symbols of openness, anti-racism, LGBTQ+, and stuff like that. And then they would also wear the face of the Pope at the same time. And that's perfectly fine. And I love that. <laughs> so I think there is hope and maybe that will change in the future. Fantastic. I guess we can, we can come back to this later if we have time, but there was another obviously topic that we wanted to talk about while we still have time in the hour, which is obviously about Ukraine. I don't even know what the best way to, to phrase it is or what the best question to ask is. I guess it's maybe just a case of, f from your perspectives, how, how you feel at the minute. About Ukraine in general? or well, Particularly about like the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's a very controversial thing here in Hungary, unfortunately. I personally was abroad when the Russian aggression started towards Ukraine. And that was really heavy on me, emotionally very heavy and challenging. And it still is. It might be a bit different now that I'm home. And I should. it should be the way around because I feel less contact with this whole world than when I was abroad, which is insane because the government's narrative at the moment is that we should just stay distant from this whole conflict. As they put, it's not Russia invading Ukraine in the official news, but it's the Ukrainian-Russian war, which already says a lot, I feel like. And for example, on the 8th of March, the leaders of the Visegrad for met, met Boris Johnson in the UK and they all expressed their solidarity towards Ukraine and they also discussed the subject of reducing dependency from Russia and then Orban even had bilateral talks with Boris Johnson. It went quite well. I was even surprised that there is like this shared expression of solidarity and taking steps. 
And then other news came. Then Hungary didn't let weapons go through the country. It didn't give weapons. It was uh, just a whole lot of mass of different narratives coming from Hungary's side, coming from the international media. I really had to dig deep through to find what is actually happening. I'm still not 100% sure. I grasped the whole thing properly and entirely. But what maybe says a lot is that on the 15th of March, there was another attempt when while many Central and Eastern European leaders went to Kiev to meet uh, President Zelensky to show support as the city came uh, under further Russian attack. And many criticism pointed out that the Hungarian prime minister was not there and didn't join the other two Central European leaders. And then I was very, I don't know, I felt very weird about that because 15th of March is a national holiday in Hungary. It's a commemorative day about the Hungarian revolution, uh, which happened in 1848 against the Austrian monarchy. And that's actually a very sad day because the revolution didn't succeed. So the government's narrative was that Orban had to be here for the Hungarian people which is, I get, I also get that, and that's a strong point. But on the other side, I feel a bit weird about it because I feel like that's not the reason. And then again, the Fidesz, the government, organizes every now and then a peaceful march. It's actually called Peace March in Hungarian, where voters and supporters of the government can show they support visibly by going to this march and just walking together on the streets of Budapest. And this year, the topic of the march was, well, peace. And how they put it is that they don't want to get involved in the war going between Ukraine and Russia, because what is the most important thing is to stay strategically calm and try to just protect Hungarian citizens. I have very ambivalent feelings about it because I also get that it's important to, as a prime minister or as a politician, to be with your own citizens in a day like the 15th of March for Hungary. But then again, there is a war going on neighbors. And the Ukraine deputy prime minister, Irina Vereshuk, called Hungary out and its government on Facebook for not supporting Ukraine. And according to her post, the Hungarian government recent treatment of Ukraine is worse than the attitude of some Russian satellite states in the former Soviet Union. Very harsh words, super harsh ones. And then she also wrote that Hungary does not support sanctions uh, against Russia. It does not give any support to Ukraine. And she thinks there is a very little difference between Budapest's official rhetoric and it's openly pro-Russian stance. She also added that maybe Hungary for a change should uh, choose the good side of the civilized world. And she warned that Hungary will repeat the same mistake made during the Second World War. So a lot of feelings going on in me right now, reading this statement. And the whole Ukrainian situation with Hungary is a very multifolded one. Yeah, that it must be very difficult to feel that way and also to express. I don't have any way to reply to that uh, other than like maybe Lily, do you have anything that you wanted? 
you know, in terms of how you feel about what's happening? Of course, I'm I'm quite far away from Czech Republic. I have not been in Czech Republic since a long time. I have been perceiving the whole situation from a country that I think is not necessarily like a target country that could be affected. All countries could be affected by this and will be affected in some way. But of course, in Czech Republic, I speak to my family regularly, some friends. And so I do know that they are really quite worried about the whole thing. There is no border with Ukraine, but there's Czech Republic, Slovakia, and then there's Ukraine, you know? So it's not really that far away. So of course, this is something that has been on my mind a lot. I also have family in Russia and it's very sad to see their reaction to the conflict because they are very kind people. I know them really well. They wouldn't hurt a fly. But when it comes to this kind of conflict, they are unfortunately brainwashed by what they see on the TV. And it's um, very sad that there's very evidently a lot of propaganda going on in Russia. But at the same time, in a more positive light, there has been so much solidarity shown from Czech people that I'm actually quite surprised because uh, contrastive to what I said earlier about Czech people trashing Ukrainians and seeing them as uh, someone that is beneath them, it is very evident that people have been very willing to help. I just opened Facebook today, for instance, and I saw that there were so many posts from people from my social circle offering uh, help, not only money, but also work and accommodation and just really helping and I think that's much, much needed. So it's, I think we all need to do what we can, but I think stressing over stuff that you cannot directly influence is not good for anyone's mental health. What I also wanted to say is that Ukraine has a border with Hungary. So we are a so-called first country where refugees can come to. And it's also very important for Hungarian people to make a distinction between the government and its citizens. Because what I see is I've been recently to Vienna. I took the train and the train station was filled with Ukrainian refugees. And the amount of volunteers there who are there to just make food for them. They are holding signs that you can come to my apartment or I'm going to translate for you. These are the languages I speak or this is a helpline. Please call if you have any issues or people waiting for them with cars and the cars have the signs that I'm going towards this city or that country, whatever. And I'm just going to take you free of charge. That made me very emotional how people are ready to help if that's the situation and if it's needed. And I just want to emphasize how we should never make a straight line between governments, politicians and what they say and then the actual people living in the country and the citizens because it can be really different. And I think that's the hard case in Hungary. I feel like we tend to think that we are people who don't speak languages, who are quite miserable and grumpy because of the whole history and culture. But all of my international friends keep saying is that Hungarian people are actually pretty cool and open-minded and they're ready to help. And now I start to see that, especially with this kind of refugee wave. And the first time I've seen that it was in uh, 2014 with the first migration wave to Europe. And that was the same with like my high school friends 
We just went to the station, many of them helped, and that's the same with Ukraine at the moment. And that really makes me proud that there is hope left. At one point, actually, there is a website where you can um, register to provide accommodation for Ukrainian refugees. And at one point, it just said uh, at the end of February that it's actually all good. We've taken care of everyone for the next few days. So that felt really good that actually Hungarian people are open to, to help. On the rhetoric side, the Soviet era is still a very pejorative term in the narrative of uh, Viktor Orban and the whole Fidesz. For example, sometimes uh, they even compare Brussels and the European Union to, to the Sovietization of people because they want to determine with whom and how we can live and how to decide in our own countries. That's actually something that they said. While Russia gave more than 10 billion euros to Hungary to finance Paksh, which is a nuclear power plant in Hungary. And when it happened, it was very controversial in the whole European Union because it gave Putin the opportunity to, to leave his signature in Europe and straighten his influence in, on the continent, like within the EU. And so I don't even have to say how Hungary is also very dependent on Russian gas, but the whole EU is. So it's going to turn tables on us soon, I guess. Now that spring and summer is coming, it's going to be better. But maybe later in, in autumn, we're going to face some conversations about that. And because of this ties and relations, politically and economically speaking, when the Russian aggression happened in Ukraine, the currency of Hungary, the foreign, was so, like, it started to weaken day by day, minute by minute, and that's how we can actually realize how much Russian influence we have in our economy and politics. Now it started to stabilize itself slowly but surely, but it's still not back to normal. Yeah, it was crazy. For a few days, people were panicking. Absolutely. So, Lily, do you have any thoughts that's apart from something Dory was saying? I, I think Dory said it really well, but it's difficult. It's very difficult when you hear from your family and you like actually see all these people that are struggling so much and there's nothing much that other people can do for them or the, the government can do for them. How do you actually, can you really help all the refugees? It's um, really difficult to unpack there, I think. So for instance, I work at, I work at a university here in Amsterdam and I work in the international office. So basically like the department for students and I work, I, I support international staff. So researchers and academic staff, actually PhDs and we are currently dealing with this situation. How do we actually help these people? Uh, so for instance, at our university, there is an emergency fund, but not everyone is eligible. The university can only help so many people. And so for instance, they can offer firsthand help for the researchers and for the employees, but they cannot help their whole family. They cannot help their social circle. So it's really difficult also with the financing. So you're coming up with solutions as you go, but there's not, there's no time. You need to do it right now. So that's uh, very difficult. And that's one of the things that I have been experiencing also as a part of my job. It's overwhelming, isn't it? It's a question of how do you help so many people? How do you, you know, prioritize? How do you share things out? How do you organize? I saw a statistic yesterday that really shocked me. Do you remember, like, 
in 2014 and 2015, whenever we were first talking about a migrant crisis in Europe, the stat that I saw that said that was like one and a half million refugees or something versus the number of displaced Ukrainians, which is like two million. And apparently like in 2014, we were like one and a half million people. No way. Nothing can, nothing can be done to help this many people versus in 2022, we were like, Oh, two million people. Okay, we'll find places like you can go all these countries opening up their borders and stuff. On the one hand, it's really beautiful to see that kind of solidarity. But on the other hand, it's also wow, you know, on a lighter note, I have some Ukrainian friends, they managed to gather a lot of help, like in terms of money and resources. And actually, they were telling me that a lot of these, these resources are reaching them in Ukraine. And they're receiving so much help right now from all over Europe, but not only that they're actually having trouble logistically to distribute it, which I guess, I guess it's like the kind of sweet trouble receiving yeah. so much help in a way it yeah, took them so by surprise, I guess. I, I was also, I was speaking to someone a few weeks ago who's in Ukraine at the minute and hunkered down in their apartment building and defending it and stuff and in coordination with like the regional army and stuff. And they were saying that like, Pretty much everyone, all the places around just need money because they're like, yeah, we have all these other things. Yeah, it, it has just been such an outpouring. I really didn't expect, for example, that like in the streets of Belfast, they were collecting like clothes and things to send over. It shocked me. I was like all the way from here and there's yeah. like truckloads of stuff going like. Apparently in the US as well. I was told that it's really, it's really a big deal. Even though right now the narrative, I suppose, is a bit like, oh, the US is getting further away from Europe, maybe. That's, there's also like contrasting feelings about that and not knowing what's gonna like, what a supposed long-term partner is going to do in like a situation like this. But so I believe this is a wrap up for today. These are all very interesting topics and I would love nothing more than to come back to these, but the time is what it is. Thank you everyone for joining for this episode. It was a pleasure to have you. It was a pleasure to speak with you, Alistair. To everyone that enjoyed this episode, please remember to check out the UNU and Instagram for more content on our breaking news. Travel guides, Sunday story, a weekly roundup of news, guides, diaries of Europe, political highlights, and our Let's Talk Politics. Thank you very much, everybody, and good night. <laughs>